Luke chapter 6. Just a second here to transition from singing to, to the lesson of God's Word. It's a special passage for us today as we conclude this Sermon on the Plain. We've been in Luke 6 since March. Can you believe that? And the reason is uh, because we had the Sabbath series. Uh, when In Luke 6, at the beginning, Jesus begins to face some opposition of the Sabbath day uh, celebration. And so we spent a few days talking about the Lord's Day. I want to mention a little bit about that again today. And then we spent uh, all summer on the disciples. So that's why we've been in Luke 6 so long. And we finally finish it today with this wonderful conclusion to the Sermon on the Plain. This has been a super rich chapter as Jesus has taken his disciples uh, from the group that we're following to the 12 that he would choose to really invest in. And, and this is really a sermon that would be like, I would call it the introductory internship lesson uh, because he's just called them and now he's going to, this, this is like the first training session. You get a new job, uh, you go to a new school, your first day of school, you have, you have this opening discussion. Here's, here's kind of the policies of the, of the workplace. Here's, here's what we do at school. Here's what this new team is all about. And, and in a sense, Christ is doing that with his disciples as you go from chapter 6, verse 20, where he begins this sermon, all the way to the end, which we're going to finish today in chapter 6, verse 49. And there's all kinds of different lessons for us to pull out. But, but I think the, the, the overriding lesson, which I've tried to get at before, and this is why it's so sobering to me to preach a message like this, is that the sermon is ask, answering this question, who is a believer? Who is really a Christian? Are you saved or not? Are you really a follower of Jesus? Because he outlines what is true for a follower of Jesus. And, and one great concern that I have is of Christians who compartmentalize their relationship with Jesus. And, and one thing I've mentioned to several people recently is, is a fear I have for our church. And I'm just going to say what I think it is. A fear that I have for our specific church, this church, you, is that people view this church as a, as a place for convenience. Um, that they, that it, it's, it's nice to have a place to come. And, and here's the problem with saying this. Because you're here. <laughs> this, is not, this is not necessarily what, what maybe you feel. But I think in general it could be a, a danger and a temptation. You know, like, there's a, there's a great church on the corner there. And, and when I want to, I can go. And when I have a need... I have a pastor, and I have a church family that I can count on. But serve, uh, you know, commit to, to come all the time, uh, forget it. And they wouldn't necessarily say that, but that's, that's kind of, and so, and so they kind of put their relationship with Christ over here, and they can pick it up like a pair of shoes anytime they want to put it on. And I think probably, and you would probably agree, that this is not just a problem for our ministry, but it's a problem for Christianity in general. Let me ask you this question. If you were arrested like Polycarp and brought before a judge and said, let me throw you to the beast, how many of you struggle even right now saying, huh, that would be a tough one, right? Any of you ready to call out like Polycarp, bring on the beasts, throw me to the lions? I, don't, I, I struggle with that. Don Carson who's a pastor, not a pastor, but a professor at Trinity Evangelical School in Illinois says, and I mentioned this before, that the early church would know nothing of a Christian who is not committed to a local church. It just didn't exist. 
How can it be that as the sermon opens and Jesus says, blessed are you poor, blessed are you who recognized your spiritual bankruptcy, who have come to God with nothing and have said, God, will you accept me? I have nothing to bring you. I cast myself only on the grace and mercy of Christ because I am sinful. I am spiritually bankrupt. And you've sensed your neediness and you've called on to God to ask, you, ask Him for forgiveness. Well, if that's true, then the rest of the Beatitudes have got to be true or they will be true. In other words, you can't just say, God, I want your forgiveness, and then not have the rest of the sermon be applicable to you. Like, blessed are those who hunger. Do you really hunger for Christ? Well, how can you hunger for Christ and not be committed to His church and to His body? Our hunger for Christ should be expressed in our desire to be here with other believers, to enjoy Him, to be instructed from His Word. Did you wake up this morning with that expectancy and enthusiasm and excitement to gather here? Uh, one of the things that we talked about when we talked about the Sabbath day is that this is something that we have just kind of given back to the culture. We've just given it to the culture and said, well, uh, you know, here's something that, uh, that uh, one pastor said uh, recently is that this is the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's morning. It's not the Lord's hour. It is the Lord's day. Um, I, I'm wrestling with that, right? I, I'm wrestling with that because we have, we have a wonderful Sunday school class for all kinds of ages. We have a, a wonderful Sunday night service where we, we, uh, we have greater fellowship. We have a time of prayer. We celebrate communion on Sunday nights. Not every week, but, but often on Sunday nights we celebrate communion. We sing songs of testimony. We, we do different things. We read the psalms together. And, 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 and it's like a lot of people just feel like if I, and I'm, I'm not just saying us, but this is true of the church in general, is that if I just give the Lord that 40 minutes, then that is, that is a great enough commitment. And yet we have people today who woke up before the sun rose, drove down to Detroit, set up their tailgating, for five hours before a football game today, we'll cook brats and kielbasa and drink Michelob Light, walk into a game half an hour before so they don't miss a thing, stay four hours for a game, come home and discuss it and watch ESPN all night with all the highlights, and those people are called what? Fanatics. Nothing wrong with that sort of thing. But what I'm saying is then we struggle with giving the Lord Jesus who suffered and died for us more than a few moments of our attention on Sunday morning. Isn't there a, a dichotomy there that you struggle with? I mean, I'm just blown away by that. And, and people are saying, well, you can't ask me to commit to, to that. But yet, the, again, they want to be invested in that and involved in that, spend all their money on that. They got all the gear on, right? They paint their faces up. You see the, you see the thing last night, these... these what I would guess to be sensible old men, have their faces painted and are dressed like clowns. Ringing cowbells and cheering like maniacs. And we're the weirdos? Because we want to come back on Sunday night for church or come to Sunday school. I mean, this, spend some time this afternoon. What, I mean, what a, it's just the commitment, the hunger that God has given us. I, I, I listened to something this week about it again to just refresh my memory. And here's one way that we have given this back as a culture. Understand that this is not the weekend. This is not the weekend. Today is not the last day of the week. But the culture, even in our minds, we say, well, this is the weekend. 
This, tomorrow is not the first day of the week. Today is the first day of the week. Tomorrow is the second day. And the Lord has commanded us to give Him this day. And it's a gift. It's like when you have trouble with an electronic device and it's malfunctioning. There's always, well, frequently on these new things, there's this tiny little hole on the back of whatever device and you're supposed to stick a paper clip in it. And what does it do? Resets that device. And if you view your souls like that, where you have been out in the world, corrupted and tainted by everything that you've come into contact with, and you just feel, last night, you just feel worn out and, and gloomy and discouraged. Well, the Lord has given you this day to come and, and push that reset button on your soul and get like realigned to truth, realigned to Christ, realigned to God and His family. How anybody can absent themselves from the services for weeks and months just, just makes me truly wonder if they are people like this passage states who say everything but do nothing. And again, this is, this is like we've got all the people here who are here. But I think our church needs to develop the mindset where we can, there is a place, Titus uses these words, there is a place for sharp rebuke. There's a place for encouragement, admonishment, exhortation, but there's also a place for rebuke. And I think we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to point out and look for those type of people that are not fulfilling those roles. But they're a Christian. Come on, Pastor, they're a Christian. I heard their testimony. They prayed. They even got their date written in their Bible. Come on, let's not be too hard on them. Too hard on them? For asking them to do what the Scripture says Christians do? For demanding to see some sort of hunger in their life or weeping over their sin or, a, or, a, or a, a tension between them and the world. Uh, I, there, is a, there is an insatiable hunger inside the souls of true believers that cannot be quenched. It's like it's not enough for us. Like, like it's when you read your Bible during the week and, and you have to get on with your day, of course, and, but you just regret that you can't read more. It's like you coming here and saying, I wish we could sing three more songs before the message. Or, or I, wish, I wish we could have further study. Or I, 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 wish, I wish we could really get involved. Like, that is the hunger that Luke 6, verse 21 is talking about. Is that in existence in your soul? Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm saying if that isn't your thought this morning, if that isn't your feeling this morning, then it's quite possible you're one of these people that Christ is referring to at the end of the chapter that you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ. I heard, a, I heard again on a, on a podcast that I was listening to, it is impossible, this pastor said, is it impossible for you to be a growing godly believer and not participate in the Lord's Supper? It's like, you are a, more than that, you are a disobedient believer if you don't participate in the Lord's Supper. And... Uh, just, just an encouragement for us. Psalm 73 talks about this idea of being a glorious reset. Asaph writes that. Remember Psalm 73? Asaph writes and he, he's, he's discouraged because he looks around and he sees all the ungodly are, are rejoicing and having a great time and, and just seems like they have all the money and they have all the fun. And he says, I went to the sanctuary of the Lord and my, and my soul was reset. I, I, I understood then what was there. And, and then he says in Psalm 73 verse 25, um, Who have I in heaven but you? and there is none on earth that I desire besides you. Well, how did he come from gloomy and discouraged and down to 
God is all I have and all I want? And the, and the answer is, he came to the sanctuary of God. It was the, it was the gift of worship that brought that. And it is my greatest dread as a pastor that there are so many people who are connected to our church but not committed to Christ and still then under the wrath of God. I've said it over and over. This is, this is something that I'll go to the grave saying, if, the grace, if, if grace hasn't changed you, then that grace hasn't saved you. If there is no newness of feeling, of life, of priority, of desire, you mourn over sin, not just continue in it. You repent of it. You're not just agonized because you think you're going to get caught over it. You respond, as Luke 6, 27 says, with love to your enemies. You, you don't come here. We, 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 don't, we don't have to. We talked about Ignatius and Polycarp this morning. And it, like I'm studying it yesterday and just keep saying to Leah, hey, guess what this guy did? Guess what this guy did? Guess what this guy did? And, and I just wonder if all somebody would have to do is, is, is just look at you cross-eyed and you become nervous and anxious about your relationship with Christ, right? You didn't come. People, people throughout history have met in swamps and barns and caves and woods, underground, in tombs, under fear of these informants who would run around and say, hey, you got some Christians over there. You didn't have any of that. No one looked over your shoulder today. We carry huge Bibles to church, huge, right? We put them on our cars afterwards while we're talking to each other outside. We don't worry about anybody driving by and saying, oh, there's Bibles. We, we come in here, we leave the doors open while we're singing. And yet still our commitment is cold and apathetic. All these things I'm saying to get us to this Luke 6, verse 43 passage that says Christianity is more than just words, words, words. And I think what our danger is in, in this culture is that Christianity is all about words. It's all about, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, I, was, I was watching something this week as well. I got, as we're doing our church history thing, uh, there's, a, there's a new series out where this guy goes to the Middle East and he's researching Paul's life. And someday it'd be fun to show it together and watch it together. And there was, he was interviewing a, a, uh, a, a Jewish pastor who talked about the... Um, the uh, kind of the, uh, the commitment of Paul and the persecution that was, that was going on in that day. And he said something like, uh, you know, I, I, don't have, I don't have that type of, of worry. I don't have that type of fear. Why is my commitment so, so weak? And Christians in our culture just like to, to say, I am a Christian. This guy said that the belief in our culture today is if you live in Africa, you're a Muslim. If you live in the Far East, you're a Buddhist. If you live in Israel, you're a Jew. And if you live in Europe or America, you're a Christian. And that's really what it is, right? You have these four different quadrants. You have the Muslim quadrant, the Buddhist quadrant, the, uh, the Jewish quadrant, and everybody else is a Christian. And it's all about words, all about what we, just what we say. And, and Christ is going to throw that under the bus with this teaching. And I hope that it's conviction for us today. James chapter 1 talks about that. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. What is that deception? You ever think of that passage where it says that in James 1.22? I mean, that's one we've memorized since we were in children's church uh, years and years ago. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Well, what is the deception? You ever think of that? Okay, the command is don't just listen. It's, it's not enough to hear what Jesus says. It, we have to act and practice what he says. And if we don't, we're deceiving our own selves. Well, what is that deception? You ever think of that? What is it? What do you think it is? 
Yeah, that we are under grace. The deception is, when we, when we just hear and don't do, the deception is, you're probably not really a Christian. People who do not act out their faith, what basis do they have to say, I'm saved? All the Christians throughout history have said the same things. Of course, they've said it because the Word says it. J.C. Ryle, the truest and only safe profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. Do you, do you want to know for sure if you are saved? The only sure, of course we have the, the objective truth of the Word of God, but the, to look at our lives and to see whether or not we are saved, the deception of being hearers of the Word is, hey, well I know the right thing to say and how to win the argument or how to come up with the right answers or to memorize all the verses, I know all the answers to the theological questions, but our profession is what either proves our, excuse me, our actions either prove our profession to be true or call it into question. And again, the point of the conclusion here in these last six verses is to examine who? You. The temptation is to look at everybody else. Now as a pastor, I have some responsibility because as, as the flock, that I have to shepherd the flock of God. And how, um, how uh, what's the word? How... Um, irresponsible of it would be of me would it be to just say well you know, those people they're you know they never come to church they uh, they're not committed to christ in any way uh, they're probably christians i mean for me i have to look at them and say there's some concern here because at least under my watch i don't want them to not hear the truth and the power of the gospel that the gospel should change you and you should be committed to christ by your actions so there's two little parables that he gives and we'll we'll just preach these two little parables and then that'll be it and there's two trees and there's two uh, builders. Okay, there's the parable of the two trees and the parable of the two builders. And both of them, I, I just want to make a statement about each and, and talk about them for a minute. So the first one is the parable of the fruit, and here's the principle of that parable. Okay? And the principle is that the nature of the tree is revealed by its produce. Okay, that, that, we're just going to have two main thoughts today. So the main thought, number one, is the nature of the tree is revealed by its produce. Or if you'd rather, by its fruit. But I like the word produce because it means it's a product of something. Okay? The principle for us is stated, so, so the nature of the tree is revealed in the produce. So let's talk about that for a minute. The, the principle is stated in verse 43. It is outside of the realm of possibility, the verse says, for a good tree to bear bad fruit, or a bad tree to bear good fruit. If a good tree bears bad fruit, what has become true? Let me ask it again. If the good tree bears bad fruit, I, I guess let me ask it this way. If the good tree bears bad fruit, what can we assume? It ain't a good tree. Yeah, it ain't a good tree. Because a good tree, according to the verse, won't do what? Won't bear bad fruit. It's impossible. There is a problem with the tree. There is not a problem with the fruit. There is a problem with the character. I wish we had raspberry bushes at our house. I heard a thing on the news this week, and they were judging what kind of jelly people put on their peanut butter sandwiches, and grape was the top. Is that you? Are you grape people? Oh, raspberry. And it's not the, it's not the raspberry 
jelly. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's, the, it's not, right? It, it's the jam. I think it's the jam. It's more of, it's not whatever it is. I know what I like. And when she brings the wrong stuff home, then we have a little bit of a unchristian response. But I, I like the raspberry preserves. And if, if we had raspberry bushes at our home and I was picking raspberries and they were rotten, I wouldn't think that something was wrong with the raspberry. There's something wrong with the, the bush. The product is only reveals a problem with the character of the thing that is producing it. Did I say that okay? So, so when, when we say things like, uh, you, you know, or we try to fix our actions, we're, we're mixed up because it's, the actions are just revealing a problem with the person. Okay? Nothing can fix the fruit when something is wrong with the source. It's just like a doctor who might give you aspirin for a headache that is caused by a brain tumor. Right? Treating the symptoms. You don't treat symptoms, you treat causes. If your car is making... I mean, we, if, Christ was, if Christ was doing this parable in today's day, he might use these examples. If a car was making sounds or smells that it shouldn't, a good mechanic just doesn't try to take the sound away. He fixes the problem and identifies it. With a bad tree, which is mentioned in verse 43, as well as uh, the rest of the passage here, Jesus is indicating in verse 45 that the solution is not self-help or self-betterment, 10 to 12 step processes, turning over a new leaf, right? Uh, making resolutions of some sort. The only solution for a bad tree, which Christ is referring to as a bad person, the only solution then is what? I hope you have the right answer. What is the solution? If the tree, which is the person, is producing bad fruit, then that proves that the character of the tree is bad, so what is the solution? And what's the Bible word for it? What? It's fun. I'm putting everybody on the spot, but it's okay. I'd like you to think through it rather than just say, pastor is giving us the word. Like thinking through and maybe thinking. It's regeneration. Your soul has to be changed. Your nature, the nature of the tree has to be completely transformed and changed. Don't misunderstand what's being talked about here. It's not like there's good people and bad people. There's unsaved people and saved people. And the saved people produce good fruit because their nature has been radically changed. They have been regenerated. They've been born again. They have been born from above. And when that regeneration happens, that is the only way it is possible then to produce good fruit. When the character of the person has been changed. We are nothing. We are unrighteous people. We cannot produce good works on our own. Good works only come from a renewed nature. So if there is not good fruit being produced in your life, then your nature hasn't been transformed and you are not a believer. What is this spiritual produce then? Galatians 5.22 says it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's produced in a spiritual way. It is, we could list them, a sacrificial self-giving love. Even in this passage, it's a love for our enemies. It's a deep and abiding, abiding joy, even in the midst of sorrow and trial and heartache. It's a peace rather than a worry about uh, life situations and problems. It's patience during adversity. It's goodness and kindness that is, that is modeled in action. It is a consistent godliness that is you are the same person in private that you are in public. It is a self-control, an ability to refuse the mounting processes of, uh, of temptation in our life. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. 
those must be being produced in your life or you are not a Christian. That's what he's saying here. These are the fruit of the Spirit. They happen when we are regenerated by the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit. Here, here's, here's the bottom line. You produce what you are. You produce what you are. <laughs> do, do you ever hear these? This, I wrote three phrases down. Or maybe there's two. Two. You ever hear these before? When someone does something, uh, and, and maybe they say, well, that was totally out of character for me. You know, I, I don't normally do that. That was out of character for me. Or, that wasn't really me talking. You heard those things before? Yes, it was! That's who you really are! You produce what you are! Listen again to J.C. Ryle. This is, this is convicting. Okay, he's a, his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Luke. It's a little book I read every Saturday night, and here's what he said. Uh, Let it be a settled principle again in our religion that when a man's general conversation, and that's again the key, pattern of living, right? It's not that we once in a while won't produce evil actions because that sin nature still exists. Everyone grasps that. But the consistent pattern is what we're looking for. If our general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way, listen to Ryle, let us not give way to the vulgar notion that although men are living wickedly, they have good hearts at the bottom. These notions are flatly contradictory to the Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's life carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, and profane? Then understand that is the state of his heart. When a man's tongue and a man's actions, again, he uses these great words, are generally wrong. It is absurd and unscriptural to say that his heart is right. That's pretty powerful. To summarize it, what Ryle is saying is, you can't, you can't look at a person in your life, but I love this person very much. And I care for this person very much. And, and I remember when I prayed with this person, and, and I really hope they're a Christian. They say they're a Christian. And then we look at the general pattern of their life, and he says it's absurd to say that that pattern is being produced by a person who has truly been regenerated by Christ. Do you get the weight of that? That's not J.C. Ryle saying that. Christ says that. So if you disagree, you're disagreeing with what the Lord says. Every tree, verse 44, is known by its own fruit. Isn't that interesting? Its own fruit. So often we make excuses. Oh, I just did that because I'm tired. I did that because I'm angry. Or we, we love this one. I wouldn't have acted that way. I guess there were three. I wouldn't have acted that way if this situation or circumstance had brought it out of me. Listen to this by uh, Paul Tripp. People and situations do not make us say and do things. They only give our nature an occasion to act. You can blame people and situations. Well, I wouldn't have done that if, if this hadn't come up in my life or this person were nicer. I wouldn't have responded that way. No, those people and circumstances are only providing an outlet for your nature to live. That's when our nature reveals itself. We could take a blind person or we could blindfold you and walk you out to the produce department in Kroger. Let's say we take a blind person to the produce department in Kroger and we pick up a, we pick up a, a piece of fruit. We just ask them to smell it. They, they can touch it and they taste it. And let's say it's a 
An, a what? A banana. Okay, that's kind of an easy one, right? To any blind person can tell you, hey, where did this banana come from? They will say it came from a banana tree because a tree is known by its own fruit. Then why as Christians do we somehow want to make excuses for people who are living ungodly lives and say, well, we know they're Christians. And I'm not saying we are judgmental with individuals. We're not arrogant or spiritually superior, but we treat them as if they're unsaved. We give them the gospel. We implore them to respond to the truth. And maybe that's you. But we beg them to respond and stop relying on their words. I mean this as kindly and as biblically as I can. Words really mean nothing. As far as us, it doesn't matter what we say if our fruit is bad. And the idea of words goes on with the next parable. So let's look at parable number two. Let's look at parable number two. So the first truth is, the nature of the tree is revealed by its produce. That was parable number one. Because as Jesus says at the end of verse 45, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. If you turn on the water faucet and the source is a swamp, you're going to get mucky water. It's, it, it's a principle that Christ is relying on here. And he's saying whatever is in the heart is going to come forth. And I don't think he's just talking about words. I think he's talking about any actions. He says, out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth. You can bring forth evil speech. You can bring forth evil thoughts. You can bring forth evil actions. And it's the heart that brings those things out. It's the nature that proves that. Okay? So the nature of the tree is revealed by its fruit. And second, second the, the proof of our profession is revealed by our actions. Okay? The proof of our profession is revealed by by our actions. Those are our two thoughts today. The nature of the tree is revealed by its fruit or by its produce. And the proof of our profession is revealed by its actions. Let's read this section here quickly. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Again, words, 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 words. But, you, but the actions don't follow, he says. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, okay, there's the difference. He heard the words of Christ, but he did not act, is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. This is a sad end. And the ruin of that house was great. That's how he ends the sermon. The ruin of that house was great. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Remember when we did this story uh, of the life of Judas, we pointed out some things that hypocrites do. Hypocrites uh, point out other sin. They ignore their own. They do their deeds to be seen by other people. They are concerned about the outward appearance. But the last one is the one I wanted to focus on. Hypocrites are full of words that seem right, but they are actually far from God. This is the great danger. Isaiah 29, verse 13, also quoted in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts from me. Actions is what proves our faith. Even the demons believe in God, and they tremble. Do the demons' actions back anything up? Those who listen to the teachings of Jesus... They may even join a group of people who do the same thing, but the real proof is not whether we hear him, but whether we hear and we obey. We're reminded of that 
um, last summer when we did the study on Pilgrim's Progress. I pulled that out this week. Here's that little section uh, where faithful tells Christian to beware of talkative in all the words. He, this, is, this is pretty convicting as well. He talks of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of the new birth, but he knows only to talk of them. The soul of religion is the practice part. Talkative is not aware of that. He thinks that hearing and saying things will make a good Christian, and thus he deceives his own soul. Hearing is just the sowing of the seed. Talking is not sufficient to prove that fruit is indeed in the heart and life. Let us assure ourselves that at the day of doom, men will be judged according to their fruits. The end of the world is compared to our harvest, and you know men at harvest regard nothing but fruit. That's like what men do to judge a successful harvest is whether or not there has been something produced. They, I was, I was, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I was uh, at a place where I saw these pumpkins. I saw this uh, pumpkin patch, and I thought, well, I wonder if there's pumpkins under there. I pull open, uh, lift open some of the, um, not open, but I lift up some of the, the uh, vines there, and underneath, sure enough, there's these kind of yellowish orange, not yet fully grown. I think, oh, there's, there's some produce here. This is, this is going to be a successful harvest. And, and people who stand before the Lord and say something like, Lord, Lord, you know, even have that reverential tone. They even use the word Lord. They even say it twice. Oh, Lord, Lord. They have a, they have a respect for him, but they don't have this adoration or commitment. And, and what, what talkative says or what is said about talkative in Pilgrim's Progress there is, is so true of what Scripture says is that the end, what it, we are going to be judged on is, is was there produce. And, and in Matthew 7 it says, many will say unto me that day, Lord, didn't we do all these things? But even that produce was was determined to be false because it was hypocritical. There was not a real relationship there. John Adams' wife, in the middle of the revolution, wrote John Adams a letter and says, we have so many who speak high and powerful words and don't do anything. You've heard phrases like, put your money where your mouth is, or talk is cheap. All of these things are true in life, but they will cost so much more to people who are just talkers of religion and Christianity and do not have a true walk with Jesus. I have had conversations with people who are connected to our church in the last six to eight months who have who've just not been here. And, I, and they say the right things. And it just breaks me because there is not that commitment that Christ is talking about here. Notice what he says is the progression of discipleship. Have you done all three of these things? He says there are three things that true disciples do. In verse 47, what are these three things that he says true disciples do? You see him in verse 47? You can give them to me. What are the verbs? Sorry? He comes. He comes. So he's, he's gathering close. And when he gathers close, then he hears. So he listens to the claims and truths of Christ. But, but that's where a lot of people end discipleship. They come and they hear. They come and they hear. They're not true disciples in that they do all three. They come, they hear, and they do. They act. It's a classic story. It's a story that we have taught children for years and years. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And the rain came. It's so cute. But it, this cute song does not does not 
give the, the, the danger that is there. Can you imagine these people huddled today in, in buildings that they hope will stand? In the fear and the dread of the storm beating on that house? Well, on Monday or on Tuesday, it will be revealed what building, right, was dug deep and a foundation. I mean, you, you've heard all, you watched all the news. Was it sustained for Category 5 winds? It will be revealed. The storms will reveal it. And the storms in life reveal true Christians as well. Jesus isn't talking about houses when he says the person dug deep and built a foundation. He's talking about lives. And trouble and trial is what reveals truthfulness in our commitment to Christ. The sod in the soil in Palestine is very, very hard. And so it's tempting, rather than to invest the time and later to dig down deep and build a foundation that will stand, to just build it right on top. Just like Jesus was saying here, everybody here would understand exactly what he was saying. And, and the person who is pictured as the person who just builds right on top is pictured as a person who's lazy, doesn't want to put in the time, doesn't want to put in the effort, wants to get it done, wants to be as simple as possible. Because it is difficult to obey the commands of Christ. It is a cost that you want to count before you enter into a relationship with Him. It's not something that is easy. It infringes upon our time. It infringes upon our desires. It goes against everything in our sinful nature. And those who respond rightly to Christ are pictured in verse 48 as people who dig deep. They come, they hear, and they do. What are being talked about when it talks about storms here, right? Well, many people have debated over and over that it, it really is talking about the difficult times that come in our life when faith is either confirmed or shattered. When someone uh, who has been praying for a baby gets pregnant and they, they lose that child, what is their response as a Christian? Do they certainly go through times of doubt and question, but do they, do they come out on the other side firmly still believing in Christ. Their faith holds. Um, go through the cancer diagnosis or the, or the loss of financial gain or the, the promotion was... or whatever, whatever it might be in life, that trial comes and faith is either confirmed or shattered. And First Peter, eight, uh, First Peter 1, 7 and 8 talks about this, that trials enter our lives for a time to prove the genuineness of our faith. That's what First Peter uh, 1, 7 and 8 says. It's like uh, you are tried as with gold that perishes and, and it is revealed that you go through the fire and you come out and you're, you still trust Christ. The Scottish pastor by the name of John Gossip faced the tragic death of his wife when she was young. Soon after he got in his pulpit and said this, I stand here in the roaring of the Jordan. I'm cold to the heart with its dreadful chill and I'm very conscious of the terror and its rushing. But I can call back to you who one day in your time will also have to cross it. Be of good cheer, my friend, for I have found the bottom and it is sound. How does a person have that sort of commitment? They stay true to Christ even during the trials. It's because they have dug deep, they came, they heard, and they did I can't imagine if persecution 
came into our, our area, that it would reveal really the genuineness of the faith of people. I think it really would. I think churches would empty by the thousands. But it, I don't think that when Jesus is talking about storms here, that he's primarily talking about the storms that enter our lives, like I just mentioned. Some people think that, and I think the application is true, but I don't think that's what he's necessarily talking about. There's a far greater storm coming than this. I think what he's talking about is the storm of judgment, the, the wrath of God, the storm that comes at the end of our lives. And when it comes, to, when, when God's wrath in a sense, comes barreling down on us at our death, the person who has built on Christ that sure foundation has nothing to fear during that storm because the wrath of God has already been assuaged. It's already been placed on on, on Christ and his death. But the person who has just spoken and not acted has proven himself not to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. When that storm comes, look at that final sentence. Great. Uh, the, The ruin of that house was great those are devastating words devastating words the real storm is that storm of judgment that will not be able to be withstood by people who have not truly put their faith in jesus christ they have depended on words instead of proving their faith through their deeds isaiah 28 verse 16 is also quoted in first peter chapter 2 and it says he has laid a stone in zion and anyone who builds on that rock i mean what is the rock that is being dug deep to and built on it is the rock of christ And anyone who builds their life on that rock will never be, the the King James word is confounded. It also can mean will never be uh, put to shame. Well, I I find it to mean will never find that their their hopes are let down. They will never be be, uh, unfulfilled in their hopes of building that. It's like they will come out of that hurricane and they they had nothing to fear because that rock was going nowhere. That's what Christ is saying here. I mean, you consider James and the demons, uh, as I mentioned already in James chapter 2. One day, you may find the truth of this. I hope not. I, that would, that's the devastation for me, is that someone one day would be one of these individuals who would have that ruin be so great in their lives. Are you truly born again today? The only way to be certain of that is to ask yourself, are you a hearer and a doer? Have you built on the only foundation that will last. And I encourage you, friend, to examine yourself today. Let's pray about this. Father, our great hope is that not one person who's connected to our church would be in verse 49 here, in that last day, and under the judgment of God, because they, they thought a commitment to Christ meant just 